0: Hello, it's Jack here from Attention Magazine. Ha, you'll probably hear loads of tools and banging around in the background as our stairs are being rebuilt in this house. But welcome to Crucial Listening, the podcast where I speak to musicians and sound artists about the three records that are important to them. My guest this time is Pete Simonelli. He's a vocalist of the band Enablers who have been a favourite of mine for some time now. I think Pete in particular, his voice and his words are so evocative and speak to me so intimately and did instantly when I heard the band. He has this ability to tap into that channel in my brain that converts words into images. It's always such a visual experience when I listen to this band. I also love the lyrical nature between him and the guitarists. Um, it's just beautiful. The music has this incredible rolling momentum, which I think you can only achieve when people have been playing together for so long, which Enablers have. And in fact, I'd recommend going to their band camp, enablers.bandcamp.com, and listening to all of the music that they have up there. All of their records are there. They're all amazing, I've heard them all, I can tell you that with confidence. Uh, And also you can go to attentionmagazine.co.uk forward slash listening for links uh, about Pete's picks and also for enablers as well, generally. So without further ado, please enjoy this chat with Pete Simonelli on Crucial Listening. In the hallway, she
1: turned toward What he called a rightful pivot, and it wasn't in the lamplight's newborn right of petition. Okay, yes, I fucked around, or even the tears all over the rug.
0: hello pete welcome to crucial listening hi jack so thank you so much for coming on the show i understand that you have been on tour in europe recently um and from email dialogue between yourself and myself i understand that this was a particularly enjoyable batch of shows and experience overall it was i'd love to know what made that so special what made the show so good and and just generally about your experience as well
1: well i mean uh we were all a little i guess a a tad bit cautious about it because it was the summer and uh it all started with an invite to a festival in france in the alps which wound up being the last show and we just booked a tour around that as you do sometimes and uh uh, and because it was the summer and we didn't have, we ended up doing about three or four festivals. You know, the summer is generally regarded as the festival circuit or the festival time. And, uh, but we managed to cobble together a, you know, a three week tour. It was 18 shows in a row, which was a bit of a grind, but, uh, <laughs> and it was hot and it was sweaty. But, um, We also enjoyed some of the good graces of of a few clubs that opened who aren't normally open during that particular time of the year, and they agreed to open the venue for a show, and uh, so that was very, very, very nice of them, and uh, a lot of these places were just tiny, I mean, shoebox kind of size places. But they were rammed, and it was, uh, it was great, and the, the audiences were really great. And so by the end of it all, we were pleasantly surprised. It went a hell of a lot better than we may have expected or um, thought it would be. There was actually, of all the 18, there was only one dud, which I won't mention by name or place. Right. <laughs> uh, it's bad juju. But, uh, <laughs> and even then, it wasn't so bad. Poor Joe had food poisoning and it just didn't work out so well for him oh, But man. uh we managed the show must go on and he did he bore up like a champ. So and it was cold because we were far in the north of France and uh, You know, it was the middle of July and it's you know something like 13 degrees outside and it's just the last place you want to be in the summer, you know, I don't want to be Shivering in the summer <laughs> But um, anyway, yeah, like I said, it just played out very, very well. And we played 18 in a row. So it was one day after the next. And we were introduced to a couple of places, two or three that we'd never been before. And uh, one of which was um, uh, one of these little festivals in a place called Benicarlo, Spain. It's uh, near Valencia. Uh, and it was run by a guy named Balty that Kevin had actually done a solo show with uh, last year. And that, I think for me, was the probably the highlight among many others, really. Um, it was just a great night. They had uh, probably the most outstanding show of party acumen I've ever been the recipient of. <laughs> um, they... Uh, there was this huge, probably 150 liter, if not more, maybe 250 liter bucket, just a huge receptacle. And they poured all this ice and just hundreds and hundreds of beers and whole watermelons and bottles of wine. And and they had grills and you would with tons and tons of sausage and bread and you would just pick a sausage and some bread and a pepper and then you would take it over to the grill and grill your own sausage. Oh, my God. And it just went on and on and on, and uh, I even crowd surfed that night. (laughs) It was pretty funny. Yeah, at one point in the set, it was during the song West Virginia, and uh, I had turned my back to the crowd at one point, and in my left ear I hear, and in my right, like a second later, I hear, ballet. And I, phoomp, up I went. The next thing I know, I'm staring, <laughs> staring up at the stars and going through that whole section of, uh, you know, somebody please, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. And the whole time I'm thinking, Jesus, this is amazing because I can go take a night swim after the set. It was hot as hell that night, but it was great. And, um, you know, a lot of these shows we were playing in shorts and tank tops and sometimes even shirtless and so that was a definite new thing for us. and um, But I'm thinking, yeah, I could take a night swim after this. I could hop over to the tub and grab a beer, which I did a couple times during the set, which was <laughs> pretty funny. But but the best part about it is they brought me back around, and the second I touched ground, it was perfectly in time with the the verse. I mean, perfectly in time. Wow. Which is great, because that's that's true participation (laughs) that's what you want in an audience in a crowd i mean perfectly on time right in time with the new with the next verse you know so yeah it was a hell of a nice time and all around you know one of the best ever for sure that
0: sounds incredible yeah it was a lot of fun i'd love to know what your set looked like this time i mean i know that you're currently in the midst of working on new material which maybe i mean it'd be for you you to say but it seems to be pulling you in a particular direction i mean does that reflect at all on the selection of songs that you went for on tour this time
1: yeah we uh we uh used a friend a guy named vincent dupas who lives in nantes in france Uh, he allowed us to use his practice space, which is just outside of town there. So we got together for about three straight days and we knocked about, uh, about six new songs, five of which we had already recorded and practiced here in New York back in April. And we hadn't really played, we hadn't played them at all, at least together, um, We could all use the recordings as reference, but we tried to bash those together as as well as we could along with, you know, a slew of, you know, previously recorded songs, songs from all the previous records. So we ended up, on average, I think we did about two or three from each record. And uh, we played about four of the brand new songs in the set. Uh, So all together, I think we had about, I don't know, 20 20 to 22 songs that were on the go and we had you know ready to use the standard set was about 13 or i guess about 13 songs and four of those were brand new ones
0: and it sounds like that you played a whole plethora of different spaces and um yeah was it nice to be able to rebound those songs against you know different kinds of Of walls, so to speak. You mean the new ones? Yeah, to kind of see how they they feel in different environments.
1: Yeah, yeah, it was, uh, now that you mention it, it was kind of interesting. I never really uh, thought about it, but um, because it it was a pretty large range of stages. I mean, some of the stages uh, were quite big, and, uh, you know, with all the trimmings you know the the good monitor the good front of house and things like that and but you know we don't let big stages get to us too much we're always in a nice tight formation and uh uh so that has a lot of impact or influence on how the songs come across and how we're doing them and quite honestly they sounded great in all the environment particularly as the tour went on if you're playing every night you know these songs just get better and better as you become more and more familiar with them and, uh, even older songs that you haven't played in a while, which is something we tried to do. We pulled out some songs that we haven't played live in years. And, um, so that was nice and refreshing too, to hear those songs in a live setting as well. But all told, you know, they were really well received, the new songs. I think people were excited to hear them because, uh, Uh, obviously they had never heard them before and, and, uh, they just sounded really good. And I think we played really well, you know, quite honestly. And that contributed to how well that, uh, the whole thing was, you know, it was a very fluid set. They fit in really well with the set. I mean, you wouldn't, you wouldn't necessarily realize, uh, that they were brand new except by the novelty of this, you know, of them alone. And I generally introduce them as such, just, just to give, and sometimes I didn't, you know, it just depended on the situation, I guess.
0: I mean, I have such vivid memories of seeing, say, Solo for the first time before I heard it on record. And right. having yeah. that as a, a reference point, but as such a visceral track, it was really exciting to to see that enacted live first and have that as my primary experience of that song
1: yeah well that's that's you know that's pretty standard practice you try to take new songs on tour and they they get honed so to speak and you get very comfortable with them so by the time you're done with the tour hopefully you can go in and record and uh just spend as little as uh, as little time as possible just getting that song together and making it sound good in the studio it just always helps it's a lot easier if you're going in having played it you know at night in and night out or a series of songs whatever the case may be and we've done that a lot over the years so we generally try to record right on the heels of coming home from a tour especially if there's new songs involved
0: so is there new recording to be done now you're back I know you said you've already recorded a, a new batch
1: yeah, we recorded five of the new songs and uh, back in April, and um, I don't think we're going to be able to get into a studio before this year is out. But there's de- there's some talk about maybe February doing it again here in New York um, or somewhere else. We're not quite sure. Joe has a uh, he still has an inn in San Francisco with a certain studio. Um, So that's an option. Um, There's also another option with a friend of ours, Nico, in Marseille, which I would rather do. I would rather go on the road again and then, like I said, once done, maybe since we're in Europe, we could go to Marseille and just try to get them all done, try to get a whole record together. I think that would be the most ideal situation. But until we can really get together and talk about it, I you know, it's anybody's guess but we'd like to have it released we'd like to have it released by you know fall of next year
0: uh i'd love to uh move now until the to the main portion of crucial listening which is i asked you to um present three albums that you consider to be important to you um we touched on it briefly just before we hit record in the difficulty of choosing three and your decision to pick an eclectic bunch but how was the process or methodology of picking these three records was there a a particular angle that you took to the um, idea of importance in a record to help you define which ones you picked
1: yeah i uh well as we were talking about you know it's 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 difficult to pick three, but also, as we were talking about, it's difficult to pick five, it's difficult to pick ten, because ten is probably too much, five is probably too much, and one is just impossible. So I, I just struck on, I struck on a couple of things. One was a kind of uh, uh, a theme among the three, uh, and the other one was that they all had a very significant impact when I first heard them, the very first time I heard them. And that was something that I wanted to include because, you know, these records mark a very pivotal period in in listening to music over the course of my life. Um, so I gave them to you in a kind of chronological, actually in a, in a chronological uh, list, not out of one is better than the other. I just did it in terms of... Uh, you know the first time I heard something that really changed my whole musical landscape and the second is sort of enhances that landscape and the third just kind of blows it all out of the water and at the same time continues to advance what I like to listen to or what what is important uh, to me I mean what really grabs my my ears and just gets inside and breathes so these three records did all of those things for me, you know, in the last, I guess, over 30 years, quite honestly. So
0: it sounds like, and I th- I think this is the f- first time I've had a guest approach it like this, at least that they've talked about is there being almost a narrative yeah. flow to yeah. the choices.
1: Yeah, it just, uh, it just felt that felt like the way to go about it, because I, I, I'm sure like everybody else and people will in the future is, you you know, you really have to think. And it's, it's a bit of a struggle, but it's also really interesting and uh, explorational. You know, you really have to delve into not only your own record collection, but your own memories. And I just felt that the two are sort of interlinked you know, are intertwined in my mind, you know, the memories and the music itself, because I can remember where I was when he went, you know, each time I heard one of these records that we're about to discuss, you know, it's very vivid in my mind and memory.
0: If I could have your first record, that would be
1: fantastic. Well, the first record is Dub Housing by Per Ubu. And the first time I heard this record, I was about 16 uh, in my hometown, I was uh, hanging out with a, a friend of mine, a guy by the name of Jason, who uh, was a really important friend in my life. He died uh, about 17 years ago now, but um, he introduced me to a lot of music that I had you know, no real knowledge of whatsoever. I might have heard things in passing, and by that I mean Oh, you know anybody from you know live skull comes to mind and um he introduced me to john giorno poetry systems records which were great but he played uh he put on this record i remember he had the album and i believe chrysalis put it out it was kind of a major label record and uh it was the first song on the second side which i think is uh oh christ i can't think of the name of it right now but i heard it and it just what's the sixth track on that jack do you have a reference to it do you have yeah what's the sixth track? one sec- uh, I-, I will wait i will wait yeah and i it just stuck with me and it literally stops Stopped me in my tracks and I turned. I said, what the hell? What is this? You know, and he told me what it was and I was just glued to the speakers. You know, I just couldn't turn away from it because what I sensed about I'd never heard anything like it before up to that point in terms of what I felt was this, this kind of fearlessness Uh, Towards experimentation and I recognized it it dawned I can remember thinking it dawned on me You know rock and roll still wasn't that old at that time of that record. It was 78 So you're really only talking a little over 20 years and so it was kind of a second phase of Rock and rolls experiment and of course it was in defiance of what it was quickly becoming uh, by that time as well, you know the the rock operas and the large and just over you know blown out you know i'm talking about bands like led zeppelin and the who and everything you know they just become these bloated pieces of entertainment and uh it was obvious to me that the music was kind of secondary and i had been listening to those kinds of bands pretty much up until that time and so perubu that record just marked a whole new horizon you know everything shifted after listening to that record, because of what it was doing, musically. And I was just instantly attracted and drawn to it.
0: Did you say you were 16 when you first heard it, or thereabouts?
1: Yeah, I was 16, I believe, so that would have been uh, 1986. The summer of 1986, I believe, yeah.
0: Where were you coming from as a music listener at that time? What what was your frame of reference into which you were trying to wedge this well album
1: you know I, like millions of other people i had already heard velvet underground and that kind of marked a uh beginning there so i'd already sort of had my ears tweaked in a different direction but you know i'd been listening to i was really into metal before that you know i was into um you know i liked zeppelin i liked judas priest i liked uh black sabbath i liked um and then there were little anomalies like R.E.M. I like those guys. Um, but a lot of it was was a lot of my listening was informed by, if not my older brother's record collections. It was classic radio. You know, I, I was just listening to those same groups over and over and over again through radio or a stereo. And then um, by the time I heard, uh velvet underground it just began to shift and then spending time with jason and his records because he was already listening he was already well involved in this different sound and uh for some reason it was just perubu perubu that was the, it was kind of the gateway drug for me that's the one it, you know really ignited the whole new listening experience because it became much more of an experience it wasn't just listening it was more than that it was what the music could conjure in your mind and and the curiosity that comes about you know how did they did that how they did that or why they did it and and then you just get a whole bigger conceptual idea of what the record is all about and so that's how I started thinking that record marks that shift in how you approach listening to a record I think i mean as a 16 year old kid anyway
0: yeah (laughs) and this was there something because it's a record that from a often from a rhythmic perspective or yeah sometimes even a melodic perspective there's at least a semblance of uh normalities maybe pushing it too far but you know structural rigor and um, something you can kind of quite easily comprehend, but then it's being constantly chewed away at by these other elements that
1: are yeah, right. sort of spinning yeah.
0: off to the sides. I mean, do you think, uh,
1: as a record... Well, I mean, you can dance to this record. You know, that's the yeah. other great thing about it. You know, you can really dance to it. It's it's Ultimately, it's a pop record. They were just kind of turn it, trying to, and I think they succeeded in turning pop on its ear, you know, in terms, I mean, they're not alone in that. It wasn't, there was a lot of experimentation, but these were just guys coming out of Cleveland, Ohio, you know, and they were making this very distinct and what I think is a unique sound for the time. But I think it's timelessness lies in the fact that you can, you know, you can, it gets your head moving and it gets your feet moving and, and you can dance to it at the same time. You know, that the fans are blowing and they have these voices coming in and out of nowhere, like Dispatches from Space or something. It's great, you know.
0: Yeah, it was interesting. My first listen was on a run. I have to confess, this is my first experience with this record, having it recommended to me by you. And Mm -hmm. I took it on a run yesterday, which felt like a more frenzied run than usual. I think yeah. I felt a lot yeah. more buoyant and zigzaggy than I would do um, uh-huh. but but listening on like studio headphones today the there were voices there that yeah felt like they weren't there before <laughs> that's right
1: that's right, yeah, I know it's great to listen to on uh on headphones because you're going to hear a lot more um i don't know if that was because of the technology at the time, they probably recorded it on Uh, You know half-inch or an inch tape. I don't know. I don't know. I don't even know if two-inch tape was around yet, but um, uh, And then there's also David Thomas's voice and what he does vocally that really grabs your attention. I know I've had discussions and or arguments about people, you know It's a a voice you either love or hate I think certainly a style that you love or hate But uh, I was really drawn to it um, because it's funny and it's playful and it's uh, at the same time. It, t- to my ears, it can even be kind of poignant. You know, it's plaintive at times, and and uh, which gives it a kind of feeling of of blues. Or I, I've always kind of affiliated this record with a, a, a strange. R&B kind of feel to it and I think they were tapping into that a little bit you know I'd like to know what kinds of records they were listening to before they made that record you know because the first one is basically a punk record it's great but it's it's nothing like dub housing you know the leap between the two records is pretty is pretty immense I think
0: yeah David Thomas is I mean he was a lot for me to to digest like um yeah and i i guess i'm still in the process of doing that but i've been really captivated by watching videos of him perform as well um right, right. It yeah it seems like someone he's who's a great performer mm, always on like even off mic he seems seems to be fit to burst
1: um yeah he's a character there's no doubt about it have you seen them live uh no I never saw Perubu, um, not even in their most recent reincarnations. They're playing quite a bit again. At least they were a couple of years ago. Um, and I think they even put out a new record. But uh, I think it was just David Thomas. It might have been one other. I know it wasn't Tony Mamone on bass. Um, there might have been one other person. Uh, it could have been... It could have been... Uh, Ravenstein, who played a lot of the sax, he plays the sax on that record. I, I One other original member or so-called original member, there have been so many now. But um, anyway, no, I haven't seen him. I, I, I really wish I had. But like you, I, I don't know, I've really watched a lot of them on YouTube and things like this. And I actually know Tony now. And it's really fun talking to him about this record in those, those days while he was in the band. So, wow. Yeah. You know. He's actually co-owner of that studio where Enablers did their last recording back in April. So he's, he oh, runs wow. A, yeah, he runs a really great studio here in New York. It's called Studio G. It's in Brooklyn.
0: That must be so strange to be enlightened to like a first-hand perspective of a record that has been with you for so long.
1: Yeah, I... Yeah, I mean I did have he uh Tony is actually uh a really good friend of a we have a very good mutual friend uh a writer by the name of Mike DeCapiti Di- uh who also grew up in Cleveland and you know he's known Tony for years decades and uh Mike introduced me to Tony many years ago and um I was a little shy to say the least because uh <laughs> Um, you know, this guy was part of a record that, that pretty much changed my life, you know, the way I, at least the way I listen to music and music is a very important thing in my life. And here was this figure who was a part of this band and this record and I'm standing right next to him and shooting the shit, you know? So subsequently over time, he and I have, uh, we've become, I wouldn't say close friends by any stretch, but, um. You know, we get together on occasion, and when we do, we like to talk. And, you know, I'll bring up Ubu quite a bit. He's he's very open and accessible about it. So, you know, it's not like it's something he would rather keep behind him at all. You know, he's he really likes to talk about it, and he likes to talk about music in general. So it's actually quite easy to do. I thought about giving him a call and telling him about what we're doing now, but I didn't know. He's a very busy guy, so... I just decided to leave it alone and wing it.
0: And <laughs> <laughs> um, do you have a favorite track
1: on this album? Uh, no, I don't. <laughs> I think they're all great. Uh, it's hard for me to pick because they change, you know. Like, uh, uh, you know, like trying to pick three records. I mean, if you asked me to do it again tomorrow, it'd be to- three totally different ones for totally different reasons, you know. Um, there's just so many pivotal records, I think, in anybody's life that uh, it's hard to pick three or a hundred, you know. I, I, I. So, you know, the same applies to songs. One day it's, it's this, or one week it's this one, and the next it's the other one. So... I just think, you know, that's what sequencing is all about and when you do it right, when you have the perfect sequence, you know, I don't think it just they work as a whole, they're meant to work as a whole, you know. So no, there's when I put the record on, there's not one particular song I go to or reach for.
0: So, if I could have your second record, Pete, that would be great.
1: Yeah, second record is uh, Fred McDowell's Live at the Gaslight, which, or Mississippi Fred McDowell, as he's commonly known. Um, This was also a record that was introduced to me by a friend, and I specifically remember uh, he played, and it wasn't even this record, uh, it was... uh, some other compilation of fred mcdowell's it might have been from his first recording with alan lomax and uh i believe it was a song called mercy and uh again it's just a song that stopped me in my tracks and we were listening to it and um he began to talk again and i put up my hand and i you know (laughs) he knew uh that i i you know i want to hear this song through and it struck me because i i had heard of mississippi fred mcdowell at the time i had been a i had liked blues even when i was a kid um i'd had sunny boy williamson records i had uh, howling wolf records i had some muddy waters records and you know by the time i was 12 13 years old but that was as a result of listening to zeppelin and the Doors and things like that. And all these 60s and early 70s bands who were all referencing old Delta Blues musicians anyway and songs. But um maybe I had heard them prior to that, but it didn't grab me like that song did. And so I think the following day I went to the record store and I found Live at the Gaslight and it had just come out. Uh, it had been out I don't know, it was 99 or 2000, something like that. That's right around the time that record came out on that particular label. Um, it was originally released on a, on a label called Oblivion um, and was recorded by a guy named Fred Siebert who was doing the recording of McDowell's stint at the Gaslight. That's what the record is taken from. It's two different sets over two or three different nights um, at the Gaslight. And Fred Siebert was recording them for WKCR, which is the Columbia University radio station here. It's still going. It's a great station. Um, and the the recording, the nights are in late 71, I believe, November or December something like that. And so I bought this record. I came home and I put it on and um, I loved it. You know, I was still soaking them up as much as I could. But there were two particular songs that just uh, really transported me. And one was uh, Red Cross Store. And the other one was Get Right Church, which is the actual which is the very last song on the two CD set. It's on the second CD. It's the last song. And that song just um, I'd never heard anybody sing blues like that before especially electrically and and there's a guy named Tom Pompasello who's accompanying him on bass and it's just such a beautiful rendition of that song you can hear that song on various recordings of his but that one just does it for me I mean if there's any one song I can go back to on this recording it's it's that one you know that's probably my favorite of the whole thing i strongly encourage everybody to listen to that record you know it's if you like blues music or if you're in any way interested you should you should really go out and get this one i think it's a very it's that it captures a very special night and particularly in mcdowell's career you know he died just a few months after that recording so it kind of lends for me that lends that that record a lot more poignance, uh, poignant i think
0: yeah i think fred himself has actually posted a lot of this record if not all of it i certainly found the second side on soundcloud so i'll put a link to that in the show notes as well so that
1: okay people can listen there's the oblivion uh, oblivion Records site as well which is uh you can order it off that you can probably stream it too i was just on there earlier today i think you can stream the whole record so
0: i'll include a link to that but um you wrote a review of this for the blog boogie woogie flu which you sent over to me earlier as right some research reading which um was great i mean it really for for me as someone navigating their first listen to this record it was so lovely to read about your experiences with it and hear it in light of those i mean in w- that review you refer to that scream during that song that um why why was that scream like particularly striking is that something you're able to put your finger on
1: you know it's such an intimate recording anyway i mean i made mention of this in that post um and i've subsequently done it many times if you just close your eyes like i've listened to it in bed and just put the earphones in and thrown the covers over my head close my eyes and listen to it and you can really conjure the space um and the people among it and um the sounds because it is such an intimate recording you know at times you can hear people talking you can hear glasses clinking and stuff like that and um the way the song begins, he sort of tunes his way into the opening of the, of the song. And just as it, just as it's beginning to ramp up, she just unleashes this scream and it just fits so perfectly in the song. <laughs> you know, just, <laughs> it really, I don't know. It makes my skin crawl, you know, gives me goosebumps just even thinking about it. There's just something about it that's so um, participatory about it. Um, and for me it's just it's just perfectly timed. Uh I always smile or laugh when I hear it. If it's been a while and I haven't listened to it and I hear it, you know, it always still sort of catches me off guard in a great way. It's one of
0: th- those records where um the applause in between songs tells you so much about the space. It illuminates the amount of people in the room, the type of energy that's there, the size of the space and
1: um yeah that's something i really enjoyed hearing yeah it was just another another one of those tiny folk clubs that existed in greenwich village at that time you know um you know bob dylan played in the gaslight and you name it dave van ronk you know the whole cast of characters populated that stage for you know 20 or 30 years and um they're small rooms generally wooden so they sounded good um yeah, like I said, I mean, there are certain points in that recording, you can hear glasses clinking and people talking and, and, uh, and people are, you know, hooting and hollering and speaking through the set, and in, in a good way, you know, in reverence, I think to him. And it's just, it's great. If you just close your eyes, you can really, you can really act like you're there too, you know, which is one thing that I loved about that record you know that's what struck me so deeply as well was just the intimacy of that recording
0: yeah and you talk about the palpable sweat and heat as well coming out of that recording which as soon as i read it i was like oh my god yes (laughs) it's stifling yeah
1: yeah it's uh you know it's sexy it's hot it's um (laughs) it's it's a sexy record it really is i mean fred (laughs) is a sexy motherfucker you know he really is so (laughs) And Pompicello sounds great, you know, Pompicello does this really graceful nod, I think, to, you know, he accompanies McDowell so just seamlessly and beautifully, you know, I think a lot of it's just walking along with him, but he, you know, he'll throw in some notes and slides and things like that, that are just really tasteful, you know, really tasteful bits that really add to the potency of these songs, you know, I thought he was great.
0: And there's something else you talk about in that review, actually, where you mention about uh, a technique that's not exclusive to to Fred, but having the guitar finish the lyric of the voice, and and having that relationship between them. I mean, I'm I'm intrigued as to whether that's something. Do do you contemplate that kind of relationship in the context of Enablers at all? Like your
1: relationship with what the guitar is saying. Uh, in a way, yeah. Uh, you know what? What I'm mostly trying to do is is find windows, which is to say opportunities to speak, but more importantly, when to shut up. So, <laughs> oh, it's true, you know. Um, so I I don't know if it's so much. Uh, I'm listening to the guitars in terms of. Uh, I don't know how can I explain this it's it's more ingrained than I can necessarily articulate, but I'm just looking for these spaces upon you know in which i can I can deliver these lines so that they're punctuated by the guitar. The guitars aren't necessarily finishing them it's happened live uh before, which is great um, but never in a studio sense it's more It's just the arrangement, I guess, even in a traditional sense, you know, verse, verse, chorus, and, you know, the chorus is obviously the guitars, but, uh, or the music, but, um, you know, Joe, particularly Goldring, I think he plays, you know, he has very much of a blues taste or feel to his playing, you know, because he grew up listening to a lot of this stuff, too, you know. Uh, you know, when he was a kid, you know, he listened to the Stones. He, you know, learned a lot of what he does from Keith Richards, you know, so blues is definitely in his style of playing, whether he knows it or not, or whether he's willing to admit it or not. And I think he would, you know, just even in his tone, it's very bluesy. So he can recognize things that I'm doing, and we can sort of play around with that in a bluesy sort of way. Not you know, so that it sounds bluesy, but in a a bluesy sort of context, I guess, if that makes any sense. I guess it's something that's probably quite intimately
0: shared with you both. um, That feels very, very strong to you guys. And maybe I'll be able to pick it up now in light of knowing about it.
1: Yeah, but I mean, it's not just enablers, though, either. I mean, there are a lot of other Bands that have come and gone and continue to play in which blues figures very prominently. Um, I mean, look at even, you know, the birthday party, for instance, you know, blues was a huge part of their sound, uh, whether you can hear it or not. But uh, and on through, you know, there's a band out of Lyon right now called Torticoli, Torticoli, um, which means translates to uh, like a neck kink. Very, very bluesy, but in a really loud and sloppy and beautiful way, you know, it's great. But you can tell that those guys grew up listening to a lot of this stuff, you know. It just plays out into your hands, I think, because it is such an infectious sound, and you want to use it, I think. I know as a, if I played guitar, I would want to incorporate it any way that I could, you know without being a blues band per se you know but it's just such a deep well of of uh not only tradition but sounds and possibilities of sounds and certainly of tunings for the guitar that you can really explore as a guitarist
0: speaking of which i mean it sounds like the tuning on this record is pretty loose in a a way that i find really gorgeous in that I don't know whether it's um a lax attitude to tuning or maybe heat working its magic on the strings but there's a lot of times where the, the tuning is out in a traditional sense but yeah it f- feels like a, it's, that's a nice presence within the music
1: yeah i think uh mcdowell did pay a lot of attention to tuning um uh it's it's and something's telling me that he actually strung his 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 strings were very loose for some reason i'm recalling that or i believe that i am i could be confusing him with someone else but i think the virtuosity of his playing would dictate how he tuned so i think he was very uh i think certain tunings were really important to him because even in his playing In a lot of these recordings, he's tuning before he actually even plays, you know, and that's part of the recording. So I would think it was very important to him. And yeah, I, you know, he played around a lot with it. And I know that a lot of blues guitarists also use something that they called the diddly bow, which was one string that they would more often than not tie at two ends in a vertical uh, way and against the side of the house. And they could use the house itself you know, these were small cabins, but they would use that for the resonance and they would just pluck this bow, what they called this string, the diddly bow. And they would learn, you know, notes and maybe, maybe even scales. I don't know. But, uh, and I think that was their first sort of inclination to how they wanted to sound or believe they should sound. And, um, I know with players like, like McDowell and even Sunhouse and probably even Reverend Gary Davis, you know, tuning was very, very important to these guys because I think it, they used it to create moods more than anything else and tones.
0: Yeah, those moments of tuning are fascinating to listen to as you hear the.
1: And it sounds like he's always tuning down. I don't know what to, but it just sounds like it's down tuning, but that (laughs) it takes a hell of a lot more knowledge than i have to tell you what's going on but if you play the guitar maybe you can pick up on those things but yeah i think tuning is really important to mcdowell yeah
0: could have your final
1: record pete and that would be awesome uh that would be interstellar space uh by john coltrane with rashid ali on drums um again uh it's just part of that sense that theme of fearlessness that links these three records together for me and um a real launching point into uh a sort of controlled abandon you know again it was something i'd never heard the likes of before and i i knew coltrane i had coltrane records you know i had i guess what could be considered standard or his bigger records you know things like Olay or giant steps a love supreme plays the blues things like that so i was you know somewhat familiar or even a little more than a little familiar with with Coltrane but I'd never heard this period of his and this I guess I first heard this record about 10 years ago uh and it was Goldring actually who turned this on to me we were on tour actually and uh he put it on he says you ever heard this before and I said no and he says well do you know who it is and I said no I don't he said take a guess and I said I you know I said I don't know Ornette Coleman maybe he says no it's Coltrane and I said you know what (laughs) because i never knew about this you know i mean a lot of this record is based in his newfound spirituality and he's expressing that and um but the thing that struck me most about this record was the conflict that i hear in it um and not a conflict musically between between him and ali it's more his own conflict that's coming out in his horn. I mean, Coltrane's always been an, a very expressive, if not extremely exp- expressive sax player to me. I mean, some of his playing has just brought me to tears, you know. Um there's a rendition he does of My Favorite Things and it's live in Japan and I think it's right around this time of the recording. It's late 60s at some point and uh I just appreciate and 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 uh, am still trying to wrap my head around this record because it's it's just so explosive and such a launch, and I know for a lot of people it's unlistenable, you know, but it's not if you give it a half a chance you'll you'll begin to see that there is actual form and arrangement and uh as you know as insane as it may sound at times there's an actual structure to these things and it's beautiful to see you know it's or listen to for me I can't can't even really discuss this record you know I was I kind of had qualms about even bringing it because I can't even really talk about it I can't articulate what it is that I hear so much about it I just felt I just felt impelled to put it on this list because it's still informing the way I hear music now I mean, to this day, 10 years later, I mean, I still, it's not so much a standard bearer, but it's certainly a new introduction to what music can do, you know, how it can just blow apart at the seams and still be this beautiful art form, you know, for me.
0: How often do you check in with it now
1: and listen to it? Uh, It's streaky. Sometimes I I still listen to it every day for, you know, a week or two, and then I'll, I'll leave it alone for months at a time. But it's something that I always take on tour, for instance. I always have it on me on tour uh, because it can be a really, I don't really like the word inspiring so much, but it can really help me get new ideas or designs on each successive night of shows. You know, I can take it with me and use it as a kind of uh, reference point vocally. Vocally because again it's the expression of Coltrane's horn that that just really blows my skirt up you know it's 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 just so expressive and so moving and poignant and and riveting all at once that uh it just sticks with me and it just starts giving me ideas you know it's it's a record it's I don't really like to listen to music while I'm writing but I can I can have this on in the background seriously yeah yeah wow in the in the background you know it's i would never have it in earphones i mean that would be impossible (laughs) uh and for anybody that knows this record you know they they know what i'm talking about but um yeah i can have it on because it's just it's rife with ideas to me you know it's just constantly taking these left turns and it's and it's curly cues and it's it's lassoes and, you know, just all of these shapes. I guess that's the bottom line for me. It's just there's so many shapes in this music that are being formed and shattered and reformed. And, you know, these are the kinds of images that I have in my head. And I can translate those images into words sometimes. I mean, hopefully I can. But, um, yeah, that's, that's kind of what it does for me. You know, I guess... On an auditory level, or... I don't know. You're the wordsmith, you tell me.
0: So. <laughs> that sounds good to me. Okay. Auditory. <laughs> um, oh. It's also another record, like the Fred McDowell release, where the artist died within months of recording it. Mm-hmm. Does that um, have any bearing on your relationship with the record and the music?
1: Yeah, it does, um, because these are these are real time documents of these people making music at their best. I think, or certainly in the case of Coltrane, at a point. And you know, I I listen to this record and I just think, what would have come later? Yeah, you know, and it's it's sad to think. I mean, what? I mean, I'm sure people think the same thing about Hendrix. What the hell would he have done? I mean, how would he have carried on? And. At the same time, you feel grateful that you still get to get a piece of this difference in his career, you know, and it was already a beautifully rich one. And he'd come back from serious addiction and, you know, became this deeply spiritual man. And he was using this music as a means of communicating that spirituality. And, you know, you just want more of it. What would he have done later or how would he have expanded, expounded upon this piece of music? and uh so it's sad and you're grateful and you're just lucky i think i feel lucky that we 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 have this recording you know because it's just such a pivotal piece of music in general i'm not talking just jazz but for music at large you know i would put this record in the pantheon of any of the great records and you know that includes people like mozart or beethoven or you know this is this is definitely a record to be reckoned with because it's just endless it's just seemingly endless i mean there's so many ideas coming at you at once that you feel like you're just playing catch up with all of them you know you're chasing after them or you're trying to understand them or you're just letting it wash over you you know i think that record has all of those aspects to it
0: my listen to this one was in the car yesterday initially where i hit a traffic jam pretty quickly on the motorway um And uh, yeah, I was sat on this, um, the sun was coming down, it was like the the ideal temperature and um, I took the windows down and like just sat stationary listening to this record and was just struck at how impossible it is to feel stationary while this record is playing um yeah
1: yeah i thought that's <laughs> what you were gonna say yeah, yeah. Um, it's not a traffic jam record but,
0: <laughs> but um, we've
1: been stuck on the m1 i'll tell you there are times when we i can specifically remember a time being stuck on the m1 with this record playing and it's just you gotta take this off i love it but this is not the time and the place for this record yeah you have to be in motion that's for sure yeah
0: um well one thing as well i mean i may get this narrative wrong i was just reading about it today so feel free to correct me but it sounds like that in the latter part of coltrane's life he started to uh lose a lot of his regular collaborators and band members to the musical direction that he decided to pursue and i think reading that mm-hmm. and listening to this um i could almost hear the vacancy of um people not being there um the, the fact oh, that it's yeah. just drums and saxophone there's a right l- a lot of empty space for them to whirl around and you know
1: yeah yeah that's that's a really good point I've, I've thought of that myself too but not in that in that way you know from that context I, um i don't really know too much about why it's rashid ali and uh you know not another drummer or any more instrumentation. I think that was probably by design. I think he thought the hell with it. And he was so attuned to this new direction that he was, um, I think he was really trying to expand his, his, uh, not just his mind, but his instrument, you know, and I think maybe he saw that as one and the same thing. Um, you know, I was once told, uh, I think it was a radio program that, uh, there was an old friend of his while he was living in San Francisco, I believe uh, you know, if you went by Coltrane's house and you didn't hear him playing, he wasn't home. (laughs) The guy was just, you know, he was a steady, steady practitioner of his instrument. And I, I always remember that when I think about this, because I think it's just, I think it's just part, part of his growth as a, as a musician. I mean, there was also the, the spiritual aspect and, Maybe he did lose a lot of players by the wayside who didn't agree with this particular change in direction or what have you or didn't believe in, you know, an Ornette Coleman or somebody else um, who was kind of uh, an adventuresome player like that. But I also like to think that, you know, he did it maybe in response to having played with Monk you know, at an earlier time in the late fifties. And, uh, you know, because Monk was sort of facing that same thing. I mean, he was such a different player for so long. And, uh, he was such a mentor to Coltrane that, uh, I, I, I would like to think that Coltrane kind of took, took that to heart as part of this musical direction. You know, I would like to think so, you know, that, that influence that he got from monk you know the idea that you can approach notes and you can approach arrangements in such a way that isn't so keen to traditional styles or um, is somewhat out of balance with uh what people expect or what people want to hear you know do you understand what i'm saying yeah
0: (laughs) it's really exciting to he talk about it cuz i think for me personally it's been i've been looking for records like this oh good good I, i'd heard ascension and yeah wanted more of that um right and have listened to a few other records which seem to share the same sort of liberal um energetic kinship with that approach and that sound but this is one that you know really rocked me so yeah i'm very grateful in particular for for this one being brought in my my direction this is one that i'm and the production as well is yeah incredible the drums sound yeah incredible yeah i agree yeah Pete this has been amazing thank you so much for sharing your time with me um to speak about these these records um it's so great to get your your insight and these picks as well and the listening experiences I've had over the past couple of days um if people want to hear any of your music or find out Anything more about what you're up to? Is there anywhere online that they should be headed?
1: Uh yeah, you can go to uh bandcamp slash enablers. Uh we have the whole catalog up on there. And uh it's pay what you want. So if you want some free listening, go right ahead. That's not gonna last too long, by the way. I'll have you know. So get it while it lasts.
0: Right. <laughs> you heard it. Everyone get
1: out and get your free enablers. Yeah. I mean, they probably got a good year, so there's no real rush. But that's that's the mothership right there. We've got everything we've done loaded up there. So you can buy songs, or you can but you know, entire record or not. Plenty of people have taken advantage of that. So there you have it. Thank you once again,
0: Pete. And uh, to everyone listening, thank you. I will see you next time. Thank you, Jack.